2: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the New Books Network and New Books in Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dan Moran. I'm thrilled to be here today with Howard Yaris, author of Understandable Economics, because understanding our economy is easier than you think and more important than you know, published this year by Prometheus Books. Welcome, Howard. Thank
1: you very much. Thanks for having
2: me, Dan. Sure. So thanks for coming on the show. So I I really want to dive into your book. I thought it was a terrific, terrific read. I kind of think I was like the dream reader for this book. But before we do that, can you just tell us a little about yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, There's a lot that you would expect. I uh, teach at NYU. I was the uh, general counsel of a large financial services company for many years. I studied economics at Brown and the uh, London School of Economics. I have a law degree from Penn. But there's also Quite a bit that you would not expect from someone who wrote a book like this. Um, I went to a failing high school, was actually shut down after I left. I uh, worked for many years as a cashier in a grocery store. I grew up in a family with a lot of with a, uh, a lot of financial issues, and um, I've also been an activist. I've I've been an activist on homelessness issues, street safety issues. So there's there's a fair amount about my background that is not. Conventional for someone who wrote a book on economics.
2: That's great. I mean, your book. The, your book. The tone of it is certainly not stuffy, or it does not make one think of the phrase "the dismal science." I mean, it's very, very. You could tell it was written by someone who's actually worked at it, worked as a cashier, and and, and knows what it's like on the ground. So, there's a number of books excuse me, that have come up in recent years that have tried to like do what your book does and demystify economics, right? So, you know, I've read, um Charles Whelan wrote a book called Naked Economics. Um, Thomas Sowell wrote this book called Basic Economics. And now we have yours, which is Understandable Economics. So you wrote in the epilogue, it was originally titled Economics for Activists. What made you decide to write another book about economics for lay readers and, and throw your hat into this ring?
1: Okay, there was a compelling reason. I've read a lot of books on economics as well. And they fold more or less into two categories. There's the category of books that try to simplify the kind of abstract principles you would learn in an economics course, sort of like economics for dummies. And then there's the category of books that try to advance a particular idea or a particular ideology or a particular position. I wanted to give readers the background and inspiration to reach their own conclusions about economics. Why did I want to do this? because there's just so much frustration about the economy and people are, are getting more and more tuned off to capitalism and the system under which we live. Uh, we've seen the Tea Party, we've, we've seen um, Donald Trump, we've seen Occupy Wall Street, but we haven't really seen any real improvement in, in our economy for the average person. So my goal was to arm people with the knowledge so that they can affect positive change. One of the original subtitles for the book was um, understandable economics because you can't change a system you don't understand. I didn't go with that, but it's, tr- it's true. People need a better standing. Of the, if I believe that if people had a better understanding of the economy, we'd
2: see more support for better and more constructive policies. Right. Because we hear people say things all the time. You hear people say, like, why don't they just print more money? And like you, you talk about that in the book. Your book, which by the way does not have is without a single graph or table. I mean, kudos to you. <laughs> so in your introduction, you talk about this idea. You talk about your aim in writing the book and you say, here's a quote from you. I'm not going to tell you what or how to think. There is no shortage of authors, pundits, influencers, and Twitter celebrities happy to do that. End quote. So was it difficult to maintain your neutrality? I mean, you must have opinions on all sorts of things, right? Was it difficult to, did you ever have to catch yourself and say, "Ah, oh, you're tipping your hand there?
1: Here's my view on it. Neutral economics is like neutral politics. Economics is about allocation. And it's, that's just, those kinds of decisions are just filled with value judgments. So the my goal was to be as forthright and as open as possible about what was motivating my positions. But again, economics is not like physics where there's a right answer or biology where there's a right answer and a wrong answer, of course. It's about decisions as to how we want to allocate these scarce resources in our society and they're full of value judgments. So what I try to do is is make those value judgments explicit should the hedge fund manager pay a lower tax rate? I'm sure there are some people out there, primarily hedge fund managers, who would agree that yes, they should. But I just tried to make those value judgments ex- explicit.
2: Yeah, there were times when I read the book and I thought to myself, well, I, you know, and then I think one of the one of the uh, the most powerful things of several of your chapter endings is when I said to myself, huh, like that's a great I think that's a great thing to do with the reader, was it was you, you, you ask the reader to, to, to reconsider a bunch of opinions and you don't necessarily solve them. Like you don't offer a lot of solutions or any solutions in the book. You talk about ideas and then you say, Now, if you do this thing, that might happen. If you do this other thing, that other thing might happen, and it, you got to decide which one you want, right? So I love how you just said it's about decisions, because you know a lot of these demystifying economics books tell you that economics isn't about money, and it's really not, right? So you say it's about decisions, like you know, talk about that some more. Like when you come right down to it, what do economists really study?
1: They study, the, the, and you'd find this basically in any economics textbook, and I agree with it. They study quote, the allocation of scarce resources. What does that mean? It means that how as a society we churn out twenty-two trillion dollars a year in goods and services in America. Who gets it? Money is the mechanism by which that's distributed. But the how we how that's distributed is is a series of judgments that are to a large extent determined by values. Again, there's Physics has a certain certain rules, and there are certain right answers. Biology has certain rules, and there are certain right answers. But when it comes to the allocation of resources, we as a society have to make decisions based on our values how how that should be. And by this is the real motivator for the book that a lot of people on the left can can just spout all the all all of the progressive views that that are are popular these days. All the people on the right can spout all the right views that are popular these days. But if they need to understand that by expressing these views, they're also expressing the values that underlie them. And they may be, they may not agree with those values. So I wanted them to understand what's going on, uh, that results in these kinds of economic policies and make sure that the, the policies out there reflect their values and not the, um, the opinion of some hedge fund manager or some, someone who was participating in Occupy Wall Street. I wanted them to, to, to understand the economy well enough so that they could support policies that would incorporate their values.
2: Yeah, that's great. And I love how you said it's about scarcity or, you know, you know, you know, allocation of resources. I read somewhere once, I forgot where it was, that someone, some economist said, um, the only place they never had to study economics was the Garden of Eden, because you have everything you want, and there's no scarcity. But as soon as there's scarcity, income, income economists. Okay,
1: the, the question is who gets what and who does. What, and that's, that's what economics is designed to, uh, to, to study.
2: Okay, money. You just mentioned money. I love the chapter on money, You know what it is, how it's used. Here's a quote from your book about money. "Quote: You said, if money itself is probably the most important invention in the history of mankind, the universal agreement that money created out of thin air by the government has value is probably the most important opinion in the history of mankind quote and that's a great way to describe what you call fiat money how, the, how fiat money can help us buy things so we all need to share this opinion that these little green slips of paper have value okay that's so that's good right but now we have cryptocurrencies and we have a whole host of opinions about those right so Walk us through that a little bit. That's Cryptocurrency is a word people hear all the time on the borders of conversations, but they're afraid to to raise their hand in the public sphere and say, I don't get it. So what are some of the conflicting ideas about cryptocurrencies? And I am going to put you on the spot and say, what are some of yours? (laughs) Okay. Before
1: we get into that, I just want to emphasize, you've already said it, but I think it's worth emphasizing. The money we use today, the dollars, the euros, the yens, there's nothing backing it. I think a lot of people, they I saw a poll of economics students who didn't, and many of them didn't realize this. The gold standard, in other words, the um, the backing of our national currencies by gold and other precious metals, was completely abandoned in the 20th century. There's nothing backing the
2: money under Nixon, right? Wasn't that under the Was that under Nixon the gold standard? during World
1: War II, when they oh, needed
2: okay, more, but it right, okay.
1: really ended in the 70s under Nixon. That's exactly right. It was totally severed in the 70s so that the national currencies we use, there's nothing backing them. Now we can talk about crypto. It's the same thing. There's nothing backing it. So what's the difference? The difference is that the U.S. dollar is, comes from the government, the people we elect. We know their names. We know where they are. We know the rules under which they operate. Crypto, which also is just created out of thin air, who creates it? Where are they? Even Bitcoin, the largest cryptocurrency, it's not even clear who came up with it. And there's another problem with it. Again, they're very similar. They both come out of thin air. If you have a problem with your checking account, you call up customer service. You know how much fun that is. Could you imagine if your bank was a virtual bank, no address, no employees, and it didn't even have a customer service number? That's the deal with crypto. So, again, technically similar, but very dissimilar in how they're, they're executed. What the future of crypto is, I have no idea. And anyone who tells you they, they have an idea, they're, they're wasting your time. It's just that I can point out that there are a lot of issues with it. Uh, another issue with crypto is, as I said, if you, if you have a problem, there is no customer service. They say Bitcoin says they can only create new, uh, new coins in this very complicated, energy-inefficient way. How do you know that's true? And suppose new coins appear. Who are you going to sue? We don't know who's, who's behind it. We don't know where they are. There's no recourse.
2: Do you think the lack of oversight for something like that, which you kind of describe as frightening in certain ways, do you think that's part of what makes it sexy?
1: There's nothing there. Yeah, okay. No who, who's running this thing?
2: So, do you think people are drawn to crypto because it's 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 they see it as like kind of like edgy or like you know going against the you know the, the government so to speak?
1: I think something much more compelling than that. They see people making millions yeah. of dollars. <laughs> that's compelling, yeah. That's
2: that's I mean, point taken. <laughs>
1: and it's great, you know, that Mister Ponzi was riding high for a long time until Mister Madoff, Madoff as well. Um, I'm not saying it's going to crash and burn. I'm just saying. Like the U.S. dollar, there's nothing there there, but unlike the U.S. dollar, there's this, there, there are, it's clear who's issuing it. It's clear the rules they operate under, and it has certain structural advantages. You have to pay your taxes in U.S. dollars. It gives it a credibility. Crypto is just completely out there.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, let's, I want to shift, take, shift um, gears here to another big concept of your book. So one of your big concepts is understanding money. Another one is this phrase you use, the winner-take-all economy. And, and that comes up a lot in your book. And if, I, if someone said to me, you know, what are some of the things you learned? I'd say, oh, there's a lot in the book I learned about that. So you talk about this idea where the winner-take-all economy, you have fewer and fewer companies that dominate a particular market. And you use IKEA furniture as an example. And here's what you say, quote, local furniture makers are pretty much gone, and the earnings are now going to a much smaller number of huge furniture producers, Quote. Okay, so that's true, right? And you make that point that these trends and economies of scale are concentrating different kinds of businesses and services into fewer places. You talk about Google, you talk about Amazon, and you say that Amazon is a threat to the retail industry. Google's a, 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 um, a threat for the information industry. So what is the threat? Talk about, can you talk about this winner-take-all economy? Why is it a threat? Who's threatened by it? And 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 um. Why, if it produces more goods and services for a greater number of people, should it be talked about as a threat
1: well i'm not sure if it creates more goods and services for a greater number of people. What it does create is monopoly power. The fewer producers there are, the more monopoly power they have and why is that bad two two reasons, two broad categories: one um, loss of innovation and in customer service think about think about the um, the Ministry of Consumer Goods in the Soviet Union, they, they didn't care at all. And I think Amazon may one day become the American version of the Soviet Union's Ministry of Consumer Goods. They, there is a big incentive to be very consumer oriented when you're building your monopoly. But once the monopoly is built, uh, call Con Ed or, or uh, Amtrak is a perfect example and you'll see exactly what I mean. So it's, it's the loss of customer service. It's the loss of innovation. Uh, and again, that's why the uh, US government broke up the phone company. We might still be on landlines today if they didn't. There's another side to the coin. To the extent there's one employer, workers lose a lot of leverage. Um, They don't have much of a choice at that point. Uh, Also, the option to start your own business and become an entrepreneur is reduced as well if there's one dominant player. So there's it's bad for, for consumers and bad for workers. And that's the problem with monopoly. And that's why we have laws against monopolies, the antitrust laws.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Great that, That's great. What you said about the winner-take-all economy. So, I want to give do a little parenthetical question here about a, a, another side hobby of mine, which is I usually host on the New Books and Film Network, and I have a, I have a, a film question to ask you and, and to apply your understanding of economics to that. So, in movies, we see more and more money. Being concentrated and spent on blockbusters. Now, that's always been the case, right? But now we see these big, spectacular superhero films for about a decade or so. And it's become more and more difficult, you read about this a lot, to produce smaller, let's say non spectacular films in which there's no CGI, things don't blow up every five minutes. Now, I can lament and complain that major studios are only financing these kinds of big superhero films and sequels. But from a studio's point of view, they say, hey, We're giving the public what it wants. That's what Hollywood's always done for for over 100 years. So from an economic standpoint, is my complaining misplaced or pointless?
1: Absolutely not. When they say they're giving the public what they want, they're giving one particular segment of the public what they want. Um, And that segment is reflected by the lowest common denominator. Uh, Everyone else is is just ignored. Um, There's... There, there are a lot of audiences out there, and it's, it's important that they be reached. For instance, you talk about films. There is an obscure film, Harold and Maude, that literally changed my life. I don't think the people who put together Top Gun and the, the James Bond pictures would would fund a movie about a, a romantic relationship between an 18-year-old and, and an 80-year-old. And it's through diversity that you get some of these films and books that speak to people in ways that these blockbusters that appeal to the lowest common denominator just can't.
2: Yeah. So it's almost like the the bigger, the the bigger the industry gets, whether it's furniture or information tech or or entertainment, the bigger the industry gets, the more it plays to what it sees as the middle. And as a result, we get a lot less interesting product, so to speak.
1: Exactly. And also this ties back to your uh, previous question, the problem with one or a few dominant players I'll say it two words: baby formula. To so the extent you're relying on on one or a couple of suppliers, if they have a problem, there's no redundancy in the system. There's no backup, and we we can be. To- Taiwanese um, the chips that they make in Taiwan. It's there's there's a benefit to having multiple providers, more than just what I mentioned before for consumers and workers. It's it it is, there's more protection for the supply and more protection for the economy.
2: So, if you're in an elevator with a studio executive, right? And you know, I love Harold and Mud too. Hal Ashby, he's a great director. And and you're having just a very nice conversation with somebody running, you know, a studio. And he, and he says, "Listen, you know, um, Howard, I, I'm with you. I like you. I, Harold and Mudd's a great movie. I saw when I was a kid. I, but people want to see Spider Man. I can't. I cannot finance Harold. I I gotta get them. As they got, they gotta see Spider Man. Does the guy have a leg to stand on?"
1: They're not mutually exclusive. You can have Spider Man and Harold and Maude. If you have enough producers or films, they can do it. Do it all. But if you only have one or two, they're only going to do the big, the big productions that move the needle. And Harold and Maude would never have happened.
2: Right. And they're not. They're not about to make Harold and Maude meet Spider Man. So we have to. We have to move on from there. All right. Uh, here's a left field question for you. Give me an example of a common economic fallacy that you hear being voiced or assumed by, by politicians or pundits or people you meet, you know, people in elevators, like I just said, even very intelligent people. What's a fallacy you hear a lot? And maybe you don't correct them. Maybe you just keep to yourself and say to yourself, "Oh, actually, that's not really the case. What's a common economic fallacy people have?
1: I'll give you two. One's more subtle and one's more obvious. I'll give you the, the subtle one first. Social security is going to run out of money. Social security is just not affordable. Uh, uh, the Paul Ryan, the former um, Speaker of the House, and Alan Greenspan, the former Chairman of the Fed, had a discussion about this. And Paul Ryan was trying—he had, you know, he was a Republican. He wanted to get Social Security cut down, and he was wanted Alan Greenspan to to confirm that Social Security is going to face a problem. And Alan Greenspan correctly said, "We have a printing press. It's a political decision, not an economic decision." Social security cannot go bankrupt as long as we have the will to pay for it. And so that's a a fallacy that I think a lot of people have, that the government can run out of money. The government cannot run out of money. It could run out of the political will to fund things, but it cannot run out of money. You can tour their prisoning presses. They could turn them on high speed. It's, It's a question of will... George Bush the first, the old the, the father, uh, was talking about education, and he had this phrase that stuck in my head, and I was many years ago that we, with regard to education, he said we have the will but not the wallet, and I thought he had it completely backwards. We have the <laughs> wallet but not the will.
2: Right. That's one. So we hear about the lockbox, but your point is that it's it's not a finite. You know, it's not like one day the lockbox will be empty. <laughs>
1: correct and it, even if it is empty we the can government fill it. yeah because the government creates dollars
2: you just have so, to have you just have to have the political will to say we're going to do this thing now and it might some people might not like it but we can get the wallet going yeah. yes and that's it's very hard because every person and
1: institution and business everyone has been involved with their whole life has a budget they can run out of money the federal government is the one entity in the entire world that, that doesn't work according to that limit. It has a printing press. It's the only entity in the world that can create dollars to meet the obligations it has. Again, it's a question of will and not um, ability. So that's the, the more subtle uh, fallacy that bothers me. The, the less subtle fallacy is a very simple one that somehow – the current administration is causing inflation because inflation is higher in England. So unless the current administration has as much influence as England as they do here, um, that's just not the case. And the point I make regarding inflation is that I recently read that in Hungary, uh, inflation is significantly higher than the United States. And the Republicans, many Republicans these days seem to venerate Orban and the – the nation of Hungary and I think it's an irony that they have significantly higher inflation and they look up to them and at the same time they're complaining that our our country's inflation is too high when it's significantly lower than Hungary's.
2: So what does cause inflation? Oh,
1: inflation is, uh, there's a lot of discussion about it and I think the easiest way to think about it is uh, this old adage from economists, too much money chasing too few goods. If you imagine the economy, there's a financial economy, which is all the money out there, and then the real economy, all the stuff, the goods and services. Inflation is caused by a change in that ratio. There's, again, an amount of money, an amount of stuff. If the amount of money is increasing and the amount of stuff is not, you're going to get inflation. Think about a really simple economy, 10 oranges, $10. That's it. Each orange is going to cost a dollar. If you suddenly double the amount of of dollars to 20, each orange is going to cost $2. So it's too much money chasing too few goods. But what we're seeing now is, again, it's since it's a ratio is, forget the, the money side of it, the amount of stuff has been shrinking. Why has it been shrinking? There's a horrible war in the Ukraine. There's the COVID catastrophe, which is impairing uh, people's ability to produce things. There's some climate issues going on. So again, it's the ratio of the, of the money or spending on one hand to the amount of stuff in the economy on the other hand, and quite simply, that that ratio has changed slightly, uh, so that there's more spending to the amount of stuff out there. That's inflation, in a nutshell.
2: Okay. The Fed. Let's talk about the Fed. Another one of your 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 you know chapter themes. You spent a lot of time talking about the Fed, the Federal Reserve Board, and I learned a great deal from this section. Now, you say that the Fed has two goals. You call it. You say it's its dual mandate, and you say it's charged with promoting maximum employment and keeping the economy growing, and promoting stable prices, which means avoiding uh, inflation averaging more than 2% per year. So tell our listeners about that. Like, What is the Fed? How does the Fed work? And what does the Fed do to meet these two goals of promoting employment and stable, stabilizing prices?
1: Okay. At its most basic, the Fed is America's central bank. What's a central bank? Every country has a central bank. They control the currency. The European nations are, are different because they now have one central central bank for um, most of the European nations. They, they make the euro. And they're in charge of our money. Why is that important? It's a lot simpler than it sounds. If they create more money, people are going to feel richer. They're going to spend more, and when they spend more, more people get employed, incomes go up, and the economy grows. When they cut down on the amount of money, it's, it's again, this is a lot simpler than, than most economics courses make it out. They, um, people spend less less money around, less spending, less incomes, less employment, and it, it's, a, it's a cycle because to the extent people's incomes go down, they spend less. And if they spend less, incomes go down even more. So the Fed has an enormous influence on the economy through its tools of managing the money supply and interest rates. Uh, it could speed up the economy by injecting funds into it, uh, causing more spending, more income, and more income causes more spending. Or it could withdraw funds from the economy, uh, raising interest rates and thereby causing less spending, less, smaller incomes, smaller incomes. They're in the second round causing less spending. So they have an enormous influence on the economy given what they do.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
2: So is it accurate to say that the Fed is the bank the bankers use? It's the bank the banks use. And what the Fed does affects who the banks lend their money to. And that's got this effect on it's the whole country.
1: bankers' bank. It's yes. the source of the money. And you and I bank at a bank and the bank banks at the Fed and the Fed controls has an enormous impact on the economy by playing around with uh, the bank's reserves and their willingness and their interest in lending.
2: All right. let's, Let's talk about that playing around. Recent headline, Wall Street Journal, August 10th, quote, U.S. inflation eased slightly to 8.5% in July. So we talked about inflation, it's been on everyone's mind lately. So at the end of July, the Fed raised interest rates three quarters of a point. So, so let's break down this one decision. Jerome Powell, right, chair of the Fed, raises interest rates three quarters of a point. Why is that done? And, and what, what do Powell and the other people on the Fed hope will happen as a result of that?
1: Okay, as we discussed, now we're facing inflation. The number changes month by month, but it's roughly an 8 9% range, which means too much money chasing too few goods. The amount of spending compared to the amount of goods has been increasing. Again, if spending and goods increase in the same proportion, you have stable prices. So you have two, two options, <laughs> decrease spending or increase goods the fed can't produce goods you know they don't make cars they don't produce computers they can all they can do is control the money supply influence spending so by increasing interest rates they discourage people from borrowing money and spending you're less likely to take a loan to build an addition on your house a fa- uh, an entrepreneur is less likely to start a new business A factory is less likely to build a new assembly line as interest rates go up. By increasing interest rates, uh, by making money more scarce, they discourage people and businesses from spending, resulting in the ripple effects we discussed a moment ago. Less spending, lower incomes, less employment, and the lower um, employment and less incomes causes less spending. It slows down the economy. What the Fed is trying to do now is slow down the economy to get that ratio Back in uh, in order to get the, the s- reduce the spending so that the s- the spending is no longer increasing faster than the supply of goods and services to get prices uh, to get price stability.
2: Yeah, and also so when the Fed does you know raise interest rates, it also sends a signal. To everybody, like even if you don't fully understand the Fed as well as you do, people understand what that means, right? So that goes back to, it reminds me of what you said before about economics being the study of decision-making. So you are less likely to make that decision to start a business or put that addition on when you read that the Fed is raising interest rates. And and even the amount of the raise is a signal. Is that correct? Like how they come up with three quarters of a point. Why not half a point? Why not a full point?
1: the do- Bernanke said that the uh, one tool of Fed is actually, quote, forward guidance, that it's just telling people that we're going to be – we're raising rates now and we're going to be raising them in the future to discourage the, the, the business owner, maybe I shouldn't consider that additional factory, or the, the, the person who has a, a restaurant – to say, huh, oh, maybe it's going to be too expensive to set up a new location for the restaurant or for a variety of reasons, for people to say, mm, it looks like it might be a little too expensive to take that loan and engage in that additional spending. So, yes, that's how they they do it through raising interest rates and sending signals that they're going to continue raising interest rates.
2: And it's hard because you say in, their dual, in the dual mandate section, you say their first mandate is promoting maximum employment. But if the interest rates are going up and I'm an entrepreneur – Maybe I can't hire these thousand people I wanted to hire. So so in, in some ways, you could say the Fed's discouraging certain kinds of employment at a certain time to get that ratio correct. Is that accurate?
1: tools are very blunt. By raising interest rates, they discourage all sorts of employment because every business is reliant on, on money. So – by raising interest rates, they discourage all sorts of employment and all sorts of risk spending. It's, it's a very blunt tool.
2: That's a great way to think about it, a blunt tool. It's not a, it's not a scalpel. Right, <laughs> not at all. So you say in your book, it's funny all this conversation we're having about sending signals and decisions. Here's a quote from your book, quote, if it sounds like the Fed has a lot of discretion and faces a lot of uncertainty as to what it should do, then I've done a good job of describing this process end quote. So you have the Fed. It's made up of the seven governors of the Federal Reserve Board. It's got a great deal of power over things that are not always black and white. You know, they have to consider a lot of opinions, uh, you know, a lot of voices out there. And you also state this, quote, the Fed's governors affect our economy just as much as the Supreme Court justices affect our rights as citizens. Quote. That's one of the most striking sentences in the book, right? Where I, that's one of the sentences I underlined. And said that's that's really interesting. I've lived under these you know these governing bodies you know my whole life, and 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 your book was the first time that Venn diagram, was put them together. So talk about that. Talk about the relationship you have these two bodies of appointed members that affect all of us. Why do you think that's a useful way to think about the Fed is comparing them to the Supreme Court?
1: Because they're the courts, the the Supreme Court and the Fed are very similar in that they're government employees. Both institutions are set up by the government but they're set up in a way that's supposed to insulate them from what's going on in politics. Uh, The Supreme Court justices are there for life. The Fed governors are there for 14 years. They're supposed to be insulated from politics. We recently had a lot of press over what the court did with Roe v. Wade, and it has an enormous effect on on many people's rights and how they're going to lead their lives. But the Fed, I don't mean to diminish the, the role of the court, affects the economy, it affects how well each of us is doing economically on a daily basis. They also have an enormous influence on our lives and I think people just don't focus as much on the Fed as they do on the court for whatever reason. There's another thing that I want to go back to that you mentioned before about the dual mandate, keeping the economy growing and avoiding inflation. It would be very easy for the Fed to just have a very, be very tight-fisted with money and you'd never have inflation, but there are countless people who wouldn't have jobs as a result. And that goes back to people need to know what's going on. Maybe we should risk a little inflation so that more people get jobs. Maybe it's it would be good if uh, the Fed, it's, people refer to it as running the economy hot, if the Fed risk a little higher inflation so that workers were a bit more scarce and they can command higher wages uh, and better working environments. That's a perfect example of, of a value judgment. There's no You could look at economic formulas and there's not going to be an answer there. It's, it's a value judgment that people need to make. And once they make it, they need to promote p- – promote po- uh, politicians and policies that reflect their value judgments.
2: Yeah, because it's hard to get nostalgic. about. It's hard to see the good side of inflation, so to speak. But I said nostalgic because there's a the caricature of the 100-year-old of the whole, you know, Kuhn says, you know, and when I was a kid, you know, this cost this and this cost that. And people fantasize about this never-never this land of zero inflation. But in your book, you make the point that 2% is kind of a really good number, actually, because it helps things grow, right? A zero inflation isn't always desirable.
1: For two reasons, two percent is good. One, there's a very slight nudge to spend to keep pushing people. If you know that something's going up two percent every year, there's a slight in- incentive to spend now. Also, when the when the economy um, when the Fed needs to cool the economy, it, it gives them some room uh, to cut interest rates. If interest rates are already, uh, if inflation is zero and interest rates are zero, it's very hard to to cool the economy. So there, there are advantages to um, a very low level in, of inflation. And in fact, that's recognized by the Fed that their target is 2 percent, which they were consistently missing for many years, which has led some economists to. Um, Notably, on the left, to say, well, they were they were too tight with money. Maybe they should have been injecting more money in the economy. We'd have more uh, more robust employment and a, a more uh, growing economy. Maybe they were too afraid of inflation. Again, it's a judgment call,
2: yeah, and it's funny because it's another one of those ideas from economics which seems counterintuitive. That, that, you know, inflation can actually be a good thing for a nation's economy. That, that kind of doesn't pass your gut check at first. But then when you reason it out, you think, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. It yeah. Makes spend
1: small, way. A small level of inflation is, is harmless and arguably good. What people get confused with is hyperinflation, where the government just stands at the printing press grabbing the money that as it comes off to pay for programs because they don't want to tax people. It's unpopular. They don't want to or can't issue government debt. So they just start printing money, and that's a catastrophe scenario. And as I point out in the book, um, always ends in either a meltdown of the economy at best or mass death at worst.
2: Yeah, it's Germany before the war. I mean, that's 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 exactly what happened there. All right, corporate bailouts. Let's talk about these for a while. You say early in the book, you won't really get into what the reader should think. But but on this one, I, you know, I laughed. I'm like, I think he might be tipping his hand a little. Maybe I'm wrong, right? So you come out swinging against corporate bailouts. You, you call them a fallacy. And you make this point. You say if a company goes bankrupt, it's just going to be bought by somebody else, right? And here's your quote. Quote, The bottom line is that no actual goods or services and none of our nation's productive capacity would be lost if there were no corporate bailouts. The nation would still have as many airplanes, factories, hotel rooms and resorts as we do now, even if we did not give Delta, Ford, Marriott and Disney a bailout. We might, however, have different management of those companies. Okay, that's your quote. Now that seems logical. That seems eminently logical to me, right? So here's my question for you: Then why do these bailouts happen, and why isn't there more of an outcry when they do? Is there or is there any way to ostensibly justify them?
1: Okay, I came out swinging, and you're right. Uh, what, makes me, what made me come out swinging is when a particularly privileged group's self-interest prevails over common sense, and that's what's happening here. Think about it. Let's take Delta for instance. Delta Airlines they have, what do they have they have valuable airplanes they have valuable knowledge as to how to get these airplanes from point a to point b if they start losing money their stock price will will start tanking and one of the airline, other airlines will will simply take them over they're not going the planes will not simply sink into the ground the executives are not going to take them home with them those planes are there there are a resource of the United States, and they're not going anywhere. So if Delta, the company, starts doing that poorly, they're going to be a takeover target. At some point as their stock price drops, some other airline or some other enterprising group is going to buy it. And they will have as much of an incentive to keep the, the assets of Delta productive and useful and in good shape as Delta had, I would argue they might even have a greater incentive because they want to. There's going to be a transition, and they don't want to lose any value in that transition. So unless you think the management of Boeing is, incompar- is, is incomparable, there's no one who can manage Boeing better than the, the managers of Boeing who came up with the 787 Max that fell, twice fell out of the air, or the managers of Delta that they're incomparable. That they there's no one as good as they are as as long as you admit there may be people as competent at management as ma- at managing those companies as the current management there's no justification for a bailout on the other hand there is the issue with um, the employees and you could as as Europe did help um provide wages to employees who otherwise would be laid off. That that would work. But simply handing money over to management doesn't achieve anything.
2: And so we're sold it's kind of funny like we're sold this idea that like no, like you, like these doomsday scenarios. Like what will happen if, if Delta goes under? You know, we want to help out the consumers but by 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 what I learned from your book and what you just said, if I run some small airline, you know, we'll call it, you know, Blue Sky Airlines, right? And all of a sudden Delta gets really low and I say, "Hey, let's let's buy these planes." And then Blue Sky gets all those points. That might be good for consumers, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The bottom line is
1: it makes sense to help people. It doesn't make sense to help companies. Companies don't breathe. Companies don't eat. And I'll give you the best example I could think of. Banks. What happened in 2008? This is something I know quite a bit from my career. There were an enormous number of defaults on home mortgages. I'm oversimplifying this slightly. And so banks were given billions of dollars to compensate them for these losses so they didn't become insolvent. What would have happened if instead the government helped real live human beings, namely the homeowners that were having difficulty? What would have happened? The banks would have been fine because the, the homeowners then could have made the payments to the banks and avoided the um, potential insolvencies. The only difference is the homeowners would have been made whole and they wouldn't have been, many of them wouldn't have been foreclosed upon. Again, it, it pays to help people. C- companies, it's, they're, they're abstractions. They're, as we learned in law school, fictional entities. What you're helping when you give money to the company is you're helping management keep their jobs.
2: Yeah, okay, great. National debt, the national debt. Really intriguing chapter. We, you know, we've seen the debt ticker in New York City. It comes up in speeches all the time. It's a, nobody likes it. It's like inflation, right? It's a scare word. It's a scare word in our personal lives. Like nobody says, "I hope I'm in debt someday." Or you know, debt does things to people. Obviously, in terms of their you know economic lives, but also their their psych, psychologically lot. You know, their emotions. You know, debt's got a, It's a very very powerful four letter word, right? You argue though in your book that a lot of people, including politicians. Either purposely or, or accidentally, you know, they think about the national debt the wrong way. They just they look at it from the totally you know backwards way. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Uh, I have this anecdote in the book about the congressman who couldn't who made a mistake. He couldn't remember whether something was a billion or a trillion. And I make the point in the book that's like not remembering whether you paid ten dollars for your lunch or ten thousand dollars. The numbers I can't get my head around them. God bless you if you can. So I tried to break it down on a per person basis. The amount of debt in the United States per person is in the 60000 range. The interest per person per year is in the uh, about $1,000. Um, so that dimensions it. Um, our GDP per person, our, the total output of goods and services per person in America is in the 60000 range as well. So Of that 60-some-odd thousand, 1,000 goes to interest payments. Is that a bankruptcy-inducing economic crisis? I think we can have differing opinions, but I think the winning opinion on that one is it's just not. It may not be pleasant to spend 1,000 out of 60-some-odd thousand on interest, but it's certainly not an existential crisis. That said, let's look at that $1,000. Where is it going? Who's getting it? Two-thirds goes to Americans. So two-thirds of that $1,000 is going from one, from one group of Americans to another group of Americans. Nothing is gain or lost. What are those groups? The groups of people, the people paying are the people who pay taxes, and the people getting the interest are the people on bonds. There's an enormous overlap there. And in fact, I would argue that there's, they're highly correlated. So it's just the transfer from your tax payment to your income uh, earnings. To one third of it does go abroad. Roughly, let's just say $350 to $400 a year goes abroad. And that represents a loss of $350 to $400 of goods and services per person. But what do we get for it? Um, we got financing for it. We made a choice to, to finance part of our spending that way. We didn't have to pay taxes. Some foreigners paid um, Made, made up our, our, our deficit uh, for us, and so we're compensating them for that. Um, one of the largest um, holders of, of U.S. government debt is China. I think there's something to be said for China having an interest in our economy, uh, at the very least, our continued existence. I think, I think you need to look at these numbers on a per-person basis. To make a decision as to whether they're really troubling or not, I'd also add that anyone who went to medical school or started a business has uh, a much greater debt hanging over their head, and I don't think you'd fault anyone for um, being profligate or wasteful if they went to medical school or started a business.
2: What would happen theoretically if the national debt? I don't think it, I don't think I think Hamilton was the only person that got it down to zero. What would happen if it were reduced and if, like hypothetically and, and evened out?
1: Well, under Bill Clinton, there were a few years where the federal government ran a surplus. Uh, we, it's a it's a possibility. There's there's another, the U.S. government bonds are are used uh, as as reserves for a lot of different businesses, and I guess some some other, maybe Apple computers or Amazon, their bonds would would serve that purpose. But that it's 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 used as a very safe investment. And, and it is
2: okay so you've been talking it's funny like one theme that's come up in our conversation a lot today which i think is really interesting is is you know choices and values and you said before do you have the political will it's almost like an alternate title third alternate title for your book could be like you know economics and values that's a big thing you want your reader to understand is that the you said before blunt instrument right is like the the, the the ideas of economics are very simple it's when you bring in all the values and decisions and stuff that people start making a lot of noise right yes so,
1: and the so national debt is, is like Social Security. It's a question of will and it's a question of will and not of ability. The US government could always come up with the money, which is very interesting because there are rating agencies, standard and poor's and Moody's, that rate debt instruments. They rate bonds. They rate Apple's bonds, they rate Germany's bonds, they rate America's bonds. And America does not have the highest rating. And the reason is purely political. It has nothing to do with economics. They're just afraid that Congress, with its dysfunction, might one day um, not enact the legislation needed to make those payments.
2: Yeah. That chapter made me think of like the, you know, the decision, like some people would be absolutely horrified carrying any kind of balance, even a small interest on, on their credit card statement. And other people might say, well, you know, that's the cost of, of living where I want to live and doing what I want to do at this time. And so it's kind of funny that like you break that down on a, on the, or you, you expand it to the national scale.
1: And the last thing I'd say in that once you have all those numbers, you have to compare it to the income. Um, right. Debt for me may be a lot no. more onerous than if um, Bill Gates had the same debt. So right. It's,
2: right. All, it's all relative. Yeah, it's all relative. So this idea about choices and values and emotions, there, there are moments in the book where you you argue what you think, you know, the government or financial institutions should do. There are moments where you say, here's what should happen, right? There's a part where you talk about patients on, patients on new drugs. And here's a quote from your book, quote, patents, I'm sorry, patents on new drugs. You say, patents should incent companies to develop new drugs By allowing them to charge prices that enable them to recoup the significant development costs and earn decent profits. Patents should not allow prices that enable them to earn outsized profits by taking advantage of people's medical needs. Okay, true. Right, so we can theoretically say this. But then as, as human beings, how do we determine what constitutes an outsized profit. Who makes that determination? Like, Would you say that's one of the challenges of economics is that so much of these decisions rely on these values and our opinions about things?
1: That's where my legal training comes in. There's, there are two extremes here. One, no patents. And if, there's, if there are no patents, there's no pharmaceutical company that's going to invest. I think it's over a billion dollars now to develop a drug. So we're not going to get any new pharmaceuticals. On the other hand, we, um, if we didn't regulate what they did once they came up with some great life-saving drug, they could really rip off consumers. So Congress, a hundred years ago, had enacted the antitrust laws and tries to find a happy medium, uh, allowing patents, but on the other hand, preventing consumers from being ripped off coming up with what they consider a fair profit for these companies. That's the fair medium that our legal our, our legal system, our government has come up with. It's a perfect example of how our economic system, our legal system is infused with values. That is a judgment. There's no right answer like there is in physics. That's a judgment that has to be made uh, regarding how much of an incentive you want to give to pharmaceutical companies, to develop new drugs, and how much you want to protect consumers from being ripped off by those companies once they once they hit a home run and come up with this drug we all need.
2: Because either because at either end of that number line you, you go into danger. So either it's the, it, the drug companies or the or tech or, I mean the you know patent laws in the Constitution, right? I mean, so you know the idea about patents is okay, we're fine, no patents, everyone's on their own, it's the Wild West, nothing gets developed. But at the other end, okay, we'll develop things, but nobody can buy them.
1: Right. It's the same thing with the book. I might not have written it if I never thought (laughs) I'd (laughs) it.
2: And that's why you hear about, you know, Charles Dickens was furious because there were all these pirated editions of his books in the 19th century. And, and and, uh, you know, same thing with Arthur Conan Doyle. These guys were like, I'm getting ripped off here. I did all the work. All right. Let's end by talking about what you say and don't say about corporations and taxing them. You mentioned corporations before. You talk about at the end of your book this idea about eliminating corporate taxation and increasing taxes on personal investment income. And then you stop short, you say, I'm not going to go into this anymore. So it's kind of funny as a reader, I go through the book, you're kind of holding my hand. You say, okay, Dan, here's what money is. and here's a thing. Okay, here's what the Fed is. And the book gets more complicated as it goes on, but never certainly um, too much in the weeds. It was, it, was a, it was a great read. So then we get to this part about taxing corporations. And here's what you say at the end. Eliminating corporate taxation and raising the lost revenue elsewhere is likely to be viewed as a right-wing or conservative policy. And therefore summarily rejected by some readers of this book the way other readers may have summarily rejected some of the policies i've discussed that are generally viewed as left-wing or progressive policies another key sentence i think in your book right so so tell the listeners why you raise this issue of corporate taxation at all and and what this specific topic in economics illustrates about the whole challenge of creating sound economic policy
1: i really appreciate this question uh, because it, it shows that good ideas could come from anywhere. Most importantly, I hope, from readers of the book. I, I raise it to, to show that a, a lot of people summarily dismiss ideas that come from the right. I also talk about Milton Friedman, who is an advisor to Ronald Reagan, uh, his negative income tax, how it, it really very can very efficiently uh, direct money to people in need while maintaining the work incentive. There, there are a lot of good ideas out there and there are a lot of bad ideas out there. And I hope that people consider them carefully based upon their merits, informed by looking at the world and learning about the world and not simply dismissing them because of where they came from.
2: Yeah. yeah. What's your last question for you? What piece of advice would you give a consumer of, of the media today, somebody reading the newspaper, Watching watching the news on TV, going on websites, when that person reads about economic trends or economic news, what would you tell that reader to keep in mind as they read?
1: To be a critical thinker. Think about, use your common sense, learn as much as you can about how the economy works and to think critically. For instance, I've had students repeat the line that if you give tax cuts to the wealthy, they create jobs and we get employed. And if you think that through, that makes no sense. Because as I say in the book, if a wealthy person gets more money and there isn't demand for more products, they're not investing. Whereas if you give the average, if the average consumer gets more money, they're going to spend money and businesses are going to have to expand to meet that demand. They'll figure out a way to finance that expansion. So again, I would urge listeners of this podcast and readers of the book to keep observing the world, learn as much as possible. And use their own head, and and to to ideally get involved because that's the way we'll see better policies enacted.
2: Yeah, and this book is certainly a means by which to do that. So Howard, it's been great talking to you today to all of our all of our listeners. Understandable Economics is published by Prometheus Books. It's available. You can get on Amazon or wherever books are sold, or the local bookstore. Right. As we learned from uh, from economics here, but thank you, Howard. Thank you so much for this conversation.
1: Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it.